Right. Um, the, the, these are actually the pictures of the, t the two institutes that I'm involved with now. I work also 50% of my time at Uppsala in Sweden. Um, so these are some pictures of, the, of Manchester and Uppsala. And you take your pick as which one you think you'd prefer to live in. Um, right, I'm going to focus today on, on Paris and take that through to what that means for us, the, the Paris Agreement in terms of climate change. So I'll call it here, um, Accelerating Towards Paris, How Informed Hope and Action Can Trump Despair. Um, and I, I'm, I'm less negative about, well, I'm very negative about Trump's election, but less so about him in relation to climate change. I think he can be a real catalyst, catalyst for international change on on climate, so I think he could be a, a way that we could uh, perhaps drive forward more um, substantive action internationally. I'm going to start off, um, and actually after that introduction, I'm not sure if I need to do this, but this is a quote taken from a paper that uh, a colleague and I had published in 2011, and we were very surprised that this actually got through peer review. It was a Royal Society um, publication, so it was you know, well peer reviewed, and this was left in, and we think it's quite important, but we thought it would be cut. This is not a message of futility, but a wake-up call of where our rose-tinted spectacles have brought us. Real hope, if it is to arise at all, will do so from a bare assessment of the scale of the challenge we now face. On climate change, we've spent 25 years hoodwinking ourselves and everyone else about the challenge we face. So we have not been honest about the climate challenge. That's the academics, the scientists, as well as the NGOs and the politicians. We've all lived some large collective delusion on climate change, and in 2016, we have a far more difficult challenge than we had in the 1990s when we could have started looking at these issues seriously. So I'm starting off by laying that out. The next bit I will uh, lay out again, which is not particularly upbeat, is our backdrop to, a backdrop to Paris. A couple of um, points about it. The first IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which collects basically the UN body that collects the, sort of the, the, the wealth of science that's gone on around the world on climate change, published in 1990, the first report, two years before the Rio Earth Summit, just over a quarter of a century ago, a quarter of a century ago. Looking around here, some of you were not born a quarter of a century ago. During that time, emissions have gone up. This year, they'll be 60% higher for carbon dioxide than they were in 1990. So that's a quarter of a century of abject failure by the international community, by people with no hair or gray hair. We have let down the, the current generation. Many of you here, will live through climate change that we knew would be the case, and we chose to do nothing about. And we continue to be exactly like that today. There's no change yet in our action on climate change. The other backdrop to it, which is really important, is that the, the last set of IPCC reports that came out in 2013 and 14 make a really important change, not in the science, but in the way it's communicating that science to the rest of us. In terms of temperature, and for instance, the two degrees C threshold that was um, enshrined in Copenhagen and then later in Paris. What matters are carbon budgets. Now that's really important. Of course, many of us are used to budgets, that's what we have, we get a salary. We have to, we have to budget our lives to live within our salary. It is not focusing on long-term targets. Long-term targets, discussions around 2050 or 2030, these have been used as a proxy by the scientists for far too long. They are completely misleading. What happens in 2050 has nothing to do with climate change. It's the pathway to 2050 that matters. And that we, that this, the problem with this shift is it means that what we, what we emit today means we cannot emit that tomorrow. And that has huge political repercussions. And that's one of the reasons why we have actually been quite, the, the 2050 target is quite appealing. We can leave it to technologists in 2030 to solve the problem. 
The problem with the carbon budget way of looking at this is that we have to do things today. We have to change how we live our lives today. We have to change our policies today. Um, and I think that, that carbon budget framework being enshrined in the IPCC is hugely important. It's not yet worked through to government significantly, a bit more so in the UK, surprisingly. But uh, internationally, it's still not that well um, embedded within um, legislation. This here is the Paris Agreement, 32 pages of exciting, riveting text. Um, I'm going to focus here specific, specifically on the mitigation part. I'm just pulling out two little paragraphs on this. Firstly, that we have committed, it's not a goal, it's not a target, it's an obligation or a duty to, to hold the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees centigrade, not a reasonable chance of, or like this UK has, a 63% chance of exceeding 2 degrees centigrade, to do, and also um, to pursue efforts to hold to 1.5 degrees temperature rise. And just, just to put that in some perspective, if you come from where I am today in Manchester, on a, well, it's actually quite warm in Manchester today, but on a normal cold day in Manchester, 1.5 degrees C or 2 degrees C warm, which sounds quite pleasant. But this is a global average. There are huge regional repercussions from those global averages. 2 degrees C globally is about 6 degrees in the Arctic, for instance. And then you also see the, the weather and climate changes, um, which are spread geographically around the planet. So we, we don't live in a global average. The re repercussions of these are very significant. At 2 degrees C, many people will die. They'll be poor, they'll be typically non-white, and they'll live a long way from here and be low emitters. So even at the temperatures we're aiming for, many people will suffer from climate change. We're going to do this on the basis of the best science and also on the basis of equity and um, with a sort of goal of trying to eradicate poverty. And they're really important in this, and that's missed again in most government legislation, including in the UK. I have some issues with the Paris Agreement. It was on climate change, and yet there's not one reference anywhere within the document to um, fossil fuels. So no reference to fossil fuels, no reference to decarbonisation. Aviation and shipping were exempt from the, um, from the Paris Agreement. These are not factored into any country's emissions, not the international um, aviation and shipping emissions. They add up to the similar levels to the UK and Germany, but are growing much more rapidly indeed. So these are not factored in, in, into the Paris Agreement, and they are both, both the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, and ICAO, who represent aviation, both of those in, in, um, organizations see significant rises in their industries right through to 2050. The national promises that were submitted to Paris, when you add those up, they come up to a warming of about three to four degrees C across the century. That's a different planet to live on, three to four degrees C. So our promises, um, in terms of our action, are three to four degrees C, but what we actually committed to in Paris was one and a half to two degrees centigrade. There was a huge gap, a huge void between the two. And the other thing that I think is really important, although it wasn't mentioned once within the Paris Agreement, or indeed within virtually any government legislation, is there is now a complete reliance on speculative negative emission, negative emission technologies. I'll come back to those later. These are really important to understand how influential they are in our um, response to climate change. Now, before Paris, we were heading this broadly in this sort of direction here, four to six degrees C of warming, according to the, um, the IEA at the time. With the pledges, or more likely, really, because of the economic collapse in 2008, we're now lower than that. We're probably more likely a three to four degrees C of warming. But we have committed to two degrees C. This is for an outside chance of two degrees C, this curve here. Um, and one and a half would be tighter still. So you'd be coming in somewhere down here for one and a half. And I'll come back to that later. But the question for me, as I focus mostly on energy, agriculture is important. About 25% emissions come from agriculture and land use. But I'm going to focus here on energy is that we cannot make the start of this curve 
with, with low carbon supply. We can't build our way out of this problem with power stations, with wind turbines, with solar panels, with nuclear power stations, which are low in carbon, but they have a lot of other issues associated with them. We cannot build our way out of the problem. And that's partly because we've left it so late. So to start off with, we have to cut energy demand. And of course, that has, again, difficult political repercussions. The supply side is really important. It's a prerequisite. It's just insufficient. So we have to also rap rapidly transition to a, a low, in fact, for energy, virtually a zero carbon energy system. We're going to hold the temperature at two degrees centigrade. But this is a global picture. And we have promised to do this on the basis of equity. And we miss that out when we think about this internationally. That means that the poorer parts of the world have longer to make the transition away from fossil fuels. So let's go back to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and their budgets. In three to 13 years from now, we will have exceeded the carbon budgets for one and a half degrees C of warming. And this ignores many of the other feedback issues that could make the situation considerably worse. In three to 13 years, remember we currently emit about 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere every single year at the moment. The pledges that we made, the promises to Paris, are not to be have, go through a major review until 2023, which is about 300 billion tons of carbon dioxide away from now. Just to give some sort of sense of those numbers, we, we, we produce about um, four to five billion tons of cement every year, probably about two to three million billion tons of municipal solid waste, and probably about a couple of um, billion tons of aluminium. And yet we're talking here about carbon dioxide when we put 40 billion tons in the atmosphere. So we're putting more CO2 in the atmosphere than, than any other activity we, we undertake on the planet. It, you know, this is a huge amount of material we are putting in the atmosphere every single year. And we're not going to do anything about that until 2023, about the promises that we've made. So from a budget perspective, I would argue it, well, I would question, is it now too late for one and a half degrees centigrade? I put before it, it was too late, but I was told that was too negative. So I'm raising the question, is it now too late for one and a half degrees sea warming? One and a half degrees sea warming was in Paris because many of the poorer countries are going to lose their homes at that temperature or anything above that temperature. And that's why one and a half degrees C was embedded in Paris. So we have to think what we are talking about here when we are choosing to fail on these temperature thresholds. Imagine if we came home to the UK and it was no longer here. But even for two degrees centigrade, now I've taken out all the maths behind this, and I'm happy to discuss that later if anyone wants to. What that actually means is that for poorer and less industrialized countries, and this is dominated in, um, at the moment by China, they would have to have zero carbon energy systems by 2050. By 2050. And I don't just mean electricity, I mean fridges, planes, ships, cars, industry, zero carbon energy. But because we're signed up on the basis of equity, that means that the, poor, the richer parts of the world, like the UK, would have to make the transition even more rapidly. By about 2035, for us to be zero carbon. So less than 20 years from now to have a zero carbon energy system in place. Now, that's enormously challenging, far more than you would normally read in the press. So why is it then when we were at Paris, we saw this. We saw, we saw people with huge carbon footprints chink champagne glasses with um, stars that flew in their private jets from all around the world to say how wonderful Paris was. Yeah. What has this got to do with the scale of the challenge we're facing? How can we reconcile these two positions together? And we do that because we've got a magician. And that magician are these negative emission technologies. And these, these you know, this sounds quite flippant, but I mean this very seriously now. These dominate the policy agenda in most countries without the policymakers even being aware of, of these underpinning the science advice that they are receiving. So what are these technologies? They're a technique that people in the future, the younger generations of today, 
will have to use technologies to suck carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere and store it somewhere securely. This is what we're relying on because we cannot be bothered to live in the world today with much lower carbon footprints. The one that dominates the, the modeling that uh, is used to advise governments um, is given the acronym BECS, Biomass Energy Carbon Capture and Storage. And this means basically we grow trees and plants. As they grow, they photosynthesize and they absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We then, we then harvest those plants, we convert them into pellets, we ship them all around the world in an, in an industry that's roughly the same size as the current fossil fuel industry. Um, we capture the carbon dioxide from the chimneys once we burn the, these pellets in our power stations, and we liquefy it and store it underground for a few thousand years. You know, this, is, this is because we cannot be bothered to make those changes today, uh, you know, changes to our lifestyles. This has never worked at scale. There are huge technical and economic unknowns behind this, indeed just behind carbon capture and storage. That is really struggling to, to succeed at the moment. There's a major efficiency penalty on power stations. There's limited biomass availability. We want to feed maybe 9 billion people. The aviation industry wants to have biomass for its, for its planes. The shipping industry wants to use biomass. Our cars already are driving with biomass in them. And the chemical industry wants to use biomass as a feedstock. We're on a round planet. Is any of that viable? I would argue not. I'll come back to that in a second. And there are huge biodiversity impacts. Some people have argued it's almost, the, the level of impact from using BECs to keep our temperature down is almost as large in terms of diversity as three degrees C of warming. So we cause one problem by trying to solve another. If you look at how much we're going to have to plant of the planet, remember this is underpinning government advice at the moment, or science advice to governments. It's the area equivalent to one to three times that of India. You'd have to plant it with biomass year after year, decade after decade, well beyond the end of this century. So we're, what we're doing now, we're locking in the future to carrying out these sorts of technologies for 100 years, if not longer. Another way of thinking about this, at the moment of the 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere, about half of it is absorbed by the, by the planet. About, half, uh, about a quarter in total goes into the oceans and the other quarter goes into plants. So about 20 billion tons a year is absorbed by the planet um, of the carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere today. To give another scale, or another way of thinking about how much negative emissions we're relying on, it's the equivalent by the middle of the century of the total CO2 that's today absorbed carbon dioxide that's absorbed by oceans. By the end of the century, it's equivalent to virtually all of the CO2 that's absorbed by the natural system today. So it is like having another planet to absorb this amount of carbon dioxide. This is our invented planet through our technical solutions. This is what we are relying on in virtually all of the scenarios that are being used to advise governments around the world. That is, I would argue that is incredibly dangerous to do that. I, don't, I think we should research these technologies, but we shouldn't be relying on them. So the question then is, well, without those, doesn't it look too challenging? Is there anything we can do to hold to two degrees C? Or what about the impacts of three or four? Maybe it's acceptable to go there. Well, there's not a lot of work done on the impacts of four degrees centigrade, but the UK Met Office did some work a few years ago, and this is based on their, their work. Remember, it's not what happens, and particularly for those of you who look at the medical side, it's not what happens as an average, it's what happens during extreme weather conditions. So imagine the heat wave in 2003. You've got four degrees C average warming around the planet. What's that mean to the heat wave? They'd be prolonged and they'd be much hotter. So if you looked at, um, the, at Europe, 20 to 30,000 people died in 2003 during the heat wave. And you'd have, add about another eight degrees C of warming to that, eight degrees C. Our train lines will be buckled, our tarmac will be melting, and the cables that bring power to our fridges and our freezers and our showers to keep us cool in the evening, those cables will be overheating because they're underground and they're cooled by soil moisture. It's in a prolonged 
um, heat wave would mean that actually that moisture evaporates, so now our fridges and freezers stop working. So you've got 8 million people in London with three days of food, the fridges and freezers aren't working, and you've got a temperature 8 degrees that, above that that we couldn't cope with in 2003. So that's in industrialized parts of the world. You look at China, 6 degrees warmer. You look at um, New York and so forth, and you talk about 10 to 12 degrees C of warming. So 4 degrees C has these catastrophic impacts around the globe. Sea level rise, very difficult to say exactly what that's going to look like, but something around the meter by the end of the century doesn't seem too unreasonable. It could be higher, it could be a little bit lower. It depends on quite how, how the ice movements occur, particularly um, in the Antarctic and, well, particularly in Greenland, rather. So one to two meters of warming. But also, what we will have done in the next 20 years, we will have locked in the melting of Greenland in the next 20 years of our emissions. It will take a long time for it to melt, but there's seven meters of warming in Greenland. So sometime about you know, in the middle of, middle of, this, of this millennia, sometime about... You know, 2300, 2400. When, when we think about London, many of our buildings here, what make our infrastructure, what makes this place feel a wonderful, vibrant city is partly that heritage. So in that sort of time frame, we're talking about seven meters of sea level rise. And we will lock that in with our behavior now in the next few, in the next few years. Food crops, the staple crops around the planet, sorghum, rice, wheat, and so forth, particularly the lower latitudes, something like a 30 to 40% reduction in those crops. Um, at the same time, the population heads towards 9 billion. So this is all looking at an appalling place to live. This is anecdotal, but my impression from talking to climate scientists across the board, these are particularly those looking at impacts, but scientists more widely who look at climate change, is that this is beyond adaptation. It's beyond an organized community. We will actually end up probably fighting for scarce resources. So it's beyond adaptation for many people around the planet. It is devastating to ecosystems. Some of the emblematic ones, like the barrier reef and the, the rainforest, but also much more importantly, in some respects, are things like the pollination of insects, a pollination of our crops and our plants by insects. So devastating to those sort of in, um, uh, ecosystems. It also is un very unlikely to be stable. We're likely to get a whole suite of carbon cycle feedbacks, like the melting of the permafrost and more methane in the atmosphere, that would make the situation worse. The temperature could keep going up considerably higher to a new equilibrium. I think it's fair to say that four degrees C even three degrees C, should be avoided at all costs. And I mean all there. So if any of you are economists, that means it doesn't matter about your discount rate. Yeah. Whatever, whatever it costs to do it, it is worth avoiding going to that sort of future. So go back to two degrees C. Is it still a viable goal? Because this is all quite depressing. My argument is yes, it is viable, and, but only just. And it would have been better if we started in 1990 or even 2000. So in terms of technology, there are plenty of things that we can do, but these will take a long time to put in place. They're really a decadal time, time frame for the supply side, for new wind turbines, solar panels, and so forth, or electricity infrastructure. On the demand side, there are a whole suite of options that we could develop much more rapidly. But also, I think, on the equity side, there are huge opportunities for changing our behavior, and I'll mention that in my last slide, I think, here. So let's look at technology first. I'm just going to touch this one, because this is the one we hear about all the time, and you'll be very familiar with that. There are plenty of things that we can do to have low carbon electricity. Indeed, many of these are already operating around the world. Whether it's a um, geothermal plant here in Iceland, whether it's offshore wind turbines that the UK has quite a reasonable collection of now, not enough, but quite a few. Whether it's size well nuclear power stations. In fact, that's the, one of the foreground is one my dad used to work, work at and I used to live next door to. Um, or whether it's big hydro schemes or whether it's solar panels. These, these techniques all work. They all give us very low carbon supply of about five to 15 grams of carbon dioxide per kilowatt hour. There's also biomass, which we have to be quite careful about because it is often not low carbon. Um, it is lower carbon than what we have today, but it still has quite a lot of emissions associated with it, unless it's done very sustainably and very carefully. Tidal schemes, 
wave devices as well, and these are still struggling, particularly the wave ones at the moment, and also this thing called carbon capture and storage, which you may have heard about, which is where we capture the carbon from burning fossil fuels. It allows the fossil fuel industry to carry on working and operating. But let's be clear about this, carbon capture and storage is not low carbon. Life cycle emissions are about 10 to 20 times higher than that of the renewables. It's the life cycle emissions that matter. So carbon capture and storage is not a viable option for um, any sort of medium-term strategy to deal with climate change. Um, so on the supply side, all of what I've spoken about there, virtually all I've spoken about is electricity. But only 20% of the energy we consume is electricity. 80% of what we consume um, in the UK and indeed globally is not electricity. So we also need a massive electrification programme. Now imagine how long that's going to take to make our industry electric, all our homes electric, our heating electric, our cars electric. You know, our ships may have to be you know, powered by biomass and also have hybrid energy systems. I'm not quite sure what we do with aircraft at the moment, possibly biomass. So there are huge changes that are necessary that we need to do, but this will take, even um, in somewhere like the UK with a very good industrial base, probably 20, 30 years. So in the meantime, we have to deal with our energy demand side. What can we do there? Well, I'm not going into details here, but some of the work I've been, this is what, most of what I've focused on for a long time. Indeed, there are some people here, including Brenda, who's worked on energy efficiency for many years, and you'll hear from her later. We need to establish very stringent energy efficiency standards, a bit like the Top Runner program in Japan. Tighten these year on year. Industry will squeal, but it will deliver. Um, this will provide a long-term market signal, so we can say what the efficiency tightening needs to be over the next 20 years. I would argue in the industrialized and wealthy parts of the world, we could genuinely power down our energy use by 40 to 70% in 10 years, but that would require us to really care about our children's future, which at the moment we, we clearly don't. But if we did, I think that would be viable, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Technology, however, and this is quite depressing as an engineer, but technology, the supply and demand side, cannot deliver on the Paris agreements because we've left it so late to address climate change. We need rapid and deep changes in what we do, how we do it, who does it, and when they do it. And this is really critical now. If we don't do this, then we are going to fail on anything like our two degree C commitment, let alone one and a half. So just talking a little bit about this and thinking of it from an equity perspective, there's a huge asymmetry in the emissions around the planet. There's be a huge asymmetry in the emissions amongst those of us that are in this room here today. About 50% of global emissions, round about, slightly less, but round about 50%, come from 10% of the population. 50% from 10%. The top 1% of emitters in the US have carbon footprints that are two and a half thousand times higher than the bottom 1% globally. Do we really care about climate change? If we have those sorts of differentials in 2016, a quarter of a century after the first IPCC report, that shows how little we care about climate change. Imagine, some, imagine a really radical idea here. Imagine the top 10%, which would include people like me, if we managed to reduce our carbon footprint to the level of the average European citizen. Now that's not too impoverished, that's not too challenging, I would have thought. That would be a 33% cut in global emissions. Just think what that means. The top 10% having emissions just the same as the average European, a 33% cut in emissions. If you look at the promises submitted to Paris, they see no reduction in carbon dioxide emissions, even by 2030. The INDCs, as they're called, have no reduction. In fact, some of the way you can read the, the promises see a slight increase by 2030. So we could be doing this now. We could deliver this within a year if we really felt it was serious. This is a real opportunity because now you start to realize that climate change is not about 7 billion people in terms of reducing emissions. It's actually about a small proportion of the population really driving it to start off with. And the question then is, who, who do you have to aim those policy levers at? Who are that 10%? Because once we know who they are, we can start to think about 
developing policies particularly for them. Well, there's the first group, climate scientists. We spend most of our life on planes flying around the world telling other people they should reduce their carbon footprints. Policymakers, no different. I don't know about uh, medics, but I'm guessing that medics are pretty much in that category. Audiences, if you're involved with climate change and you're adamant on climate change, we're almost certainly going to be in the, the top few percent of emitters. And if you get on a plane regularly, then that puts us in that category as well. So we know who these people are. We see them when we shave in the morning or put our makeup on. They're people like us. And equity completely, I would argue, equity could, could completely reframe our climate change agenda. Firstly, most of the 7 billion at the moment, 7.4 billion, are not responsible for climate change. And it's a red herring to assume that the population growth is a big issue for climate change. It is about consumption by the few in the short to medium term that really matters. We know who that few are, and that does include about 300 million people in China as well. So it's not just in the wealthy parts of the world. Because of this asymmetry, that means there are many things that we can do. There's real opportunities for, for rapid and near-term reductions without draconian lifestyles. As I say, the average European lifestyle. That's not good enough, but that's a move certainly in the right direction. I also would argue that people like us, actually, whether in the university or whether it's the, you know, um, the medics of the world or whether it's the pension companies, um, whether it's the stars of this world, the Leonardo DiCaprio's and so forth, we provide examples. Maybe it's a sad state of the world, but we are, in some respects, role models for other people in society. So if we are prepared to demonstrate what is possible, that makes it much easier for other people to start to engage in these issues. But we have collectively decided not to take on board that responsibility. But I think if we do demonstrate by example, then we could actually catalyze very significant system change very rapidly. Remember, it's, it's our friends and our colleagues, the same people who go to our schools and our universities, that are the leaders within our society and are the leaders within our uh, politics and our um, industry. So you know, we, we work in those, in those circles. We move in those circles all the time. We always think we're normal, but none of us are. Very few of us in this world, in this room here, will be normal. We'll all be in the top few percent of income um, bands, or at least aspiring to be in them. Because we've left climate change so late, it is now a system, pro system problem. And if you take the carbon budgets, the logic, the scientific logic of carbon budgets from Paris, and look at those in terms of what that means about where we are today, we have to change our norms and paradigms. Because we chose to fail for a quarter of a century, we're now in the position where we have to question how it is we live our lives, what it is that we do, what it is we aspire to, what it is we think that separates us between each other, issues of status and value. We require now a Marshall-style um, reconstruction of the wealthy parts of the world towards being zero carbon energy. Now that is a huge task, but is achievable. It will take a long time. Alongside that, we need a massive efficiency program in terms of, energy, in, in terms of our energy use. And that also includes conservation, because you normally, as we're more efficient in something, we end up using more of it. So we have to think about that rebound factor as well. We have to have a complete transition in our physical and our institutional infrastructures. Some of that will be quicker than others, but you know, that is going to take some significant amount of time. We need a profound shift in behavior, practices, and I would argue their values. We need to develop, and this may sound like an oxymoron, but cogent economic models. Economic models haven't been cogent for at least 30 years. I always like to think that you know, we have a current economic model that is very ephemeral and it's already starting to collapse in and of itself. And yet we've had physics, and the laws of physics, that have been fairly reliable for about 13 billion years. And yet we are prepared to put the laws of physics to one side because we're so now obsessed and locked in dogmatically to the current model we have of economics, or of finance, I would prefer to call it. And much more inclusive values, and we need to start to think about inter- and intergenerational issues much more seriously than we are today. So there's a sort of catalogue of things that we need to be doing that could move us in the right sort of direction. The problem is we need to start this now. 
and we have to have it all completed in about three decades. So this is a huge challenge, one that at the moment things are not looking particularly promising about. But I, I still think, I still hold that there's a small chance if we chose to make the necessary changes. So I come back to um, the quote I started with. Real hope, if it is to arise at all, will do so from a bare assessment of the scale of the challenge we now face. I've tried to lay that out, and I've tried to show that there are things that we can do to get us out of this dilemma if we do care enough about our own children's future, about the poor people elsewhere in the world, and indeed about the legacy that we will leave. I'll finish off, though, with a more upbeat quote that I regularly use from uh, Robert Unger, who was originally a, a, a Brazilian politician, but much more of a philosopher, really. Um, at every level, the greatest obstacle to transforming the world is that we lack the clarity and imagination to conceive that it could be different. And you so often hear when you give talks like I'm giving here that that's not possible. We could never do that. Well, we are going to have to radically change what we do, either because we do it sensibly and organise a low-carbon society, or because we don't bother and we'll be hit by significant levels of climate change. Either way, the future is radically different from now. One's much more promising and a pleasant place to live than the other one. So we need to imagine what that future will look like, what we would need to do. But imagination is not enough. We then need to think, how do we deliver that? What is the clarity of thought around that that can help our policymakers put the right framework in place to make the transition to zero carbon within the next 20 to 30 years? So on that upbeat note, um, thank you very much for listening.